A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Gretchen Moran, the Senior Director of Data Products at the National Geographic Society, which is the nonprofit arm of National Geographic. Some key takeaways and thoughts from Gretchen's point of view. Number one, NGS is a bit unique in that they don't have a widely deployed data architecture, so they do not have a lot of habits to unlearn when moving towards data mesh. Starting with the greenfield means likely more training and learning slash experimenting will be required, but at least no institutional unlearning. (laughs) Number two, to move forward with data mesh, organizations must be able to embrace change and the pain that it will inevitably bring and also embrace ambiguity. You need to move forward and figure it out together, but also be okay with failure as a learning experience as you test what works for your organization. Number three, to win the hearts and minds of data producers. Show them what high quality data can mean for the organization and their domain and role. Work closely with them, understand their context, hold their hand to bring them along and align to the vision of data. Number four, it's easier to drive buy-in widely if you find the organizational influencers and win them over. It is the domino effect in practice. Partner closely with the influencers early on to drive your initiatives forward. Number five, for NGS, they are working with a single initial data producing team for their proof, proof of value. The data mesh world seems to be a little bit split between working with one team or working with two to three, 
in the initial proof of value stage. I still don't have a real opinion on that just yet. I think it's probably 70%, 60, 60% are doing the two to three teams and the other are doing one team. Number six, uh, a quote from Gretchen is, any technology effort is still a people effort. I think it's really important to keep that in your mind whenever you're doing anything where you're trying to really move forward with something in technology. Number seven, we have yet to learn how to leverage the knowledge and context of people without data knowledge in general in the data and analytics space. So these people who aren't super data literate, we haven't done a good job of kind of extracting that context and knowledge and making it something that is consumable for analytics. This is what Data Mesh tries to unlock, but we are still figuring out how to do it well or even do it at all. Number eight, it's very easy to intimidate people with data. We need to make tech and especially data much less intimidating to push broader adoption. The business context of those who aren't yet data literate can be extremely valuable. We need to lower the actual bar to leveraging data, but also lower that perceived bar. Number nine, a quote again from Gretchen is, metrics plus outcomes equals value. You know, without outcomes attached, metrics have no real value in her mind. Number 10, automation is going to be key to many aspects of data mesh. Upskilling people to leverage data will only really pay off if it doesn't mean a large increase in the amount of work to leverage that data. So if we can't automate a lot of the tasks of dealing with data, we're either going to have to hire an army of new people, or we're going to spend all of our time producing the data and none of the time consuming it. Number 11, user experience is crucial to getting the most out of your data. Think about your data user experience, your DUX, your DUX, and bring in designers to help optimize the experience and really focus on data as a product thinking. Part of that is design. Part of that is user experience. Number 12, NGS is still trying to find who should own generating and sharing insights on data combined from multiple domains. Is that a centralized insights team? Does that does doing that then push us too far back towards centralization? Is it kind of only consumer aligned domains? And that's still something that people are relatively confused in in, in data mesh. It's it's still early days, but those insights are crucial to driving value from data. So we do have to figure out who really should be owning that, that combination. Number 13, we will see where new insights come from in Data Mesh. Will it be more insights from data consumers as they can spend time on data analysis instead of data cleaning? Or will it be the data producers as they learn how to really leverage their own data, both? Again, we'll see. I think it's going to be interesting to see how that value production emerges in data mesh. Number 14, many are waiting for vendors to validate data mesh, but they really haven't done that very well just yet. It remains to be seen if they could even validate something so complex and large in scope as data mesh is. Number 15, building brave teams, teams that aren't afraid of new challenges or of failure or especially of ambiguity will be crucial to getting data mesh right 
Teams might be afraid of doing things, you know, kind of quote unquote wrong, but as long as they work to get to a good state and incorporate feedback and learnings, that's what will drive much more value in the long run than trying to thread that needle up front. We have to, you know, lower the the cost of change. Number 16, there is really shared ownership of data, even inside the same domain. The subject matter experts and the people shaping the data products must build a strong relationship with good communication to actually share that ownership. We can't have it all on one person's uh, shoulders. It's not going to really work. Number 17, Data Mesh aims to and needs to solve for the cost of change in data. Traditional data warehouses have had an extremely high cost of change. The huge cascading pipeline setups most have built with Data Lake have that too. Data Mesh needs to make evolution in data much easier, quicker, safer, less costly, etc. It's still early days there, but we have to figure out how. Number 18, there is a delicate balance between over-architecting and under-investing in your platform. Look to build for reuse and don't lock yourself into decisions where possible. Yes, far, far, far easier said than done. (laughs) Number 19, many teams are worrying if they are doing data sharing wrong, but can they actually really do it wrong? Yeah, probably. But if they're open to feedback and paying attention, they don't have to get it quote unquote right the first time. You can evolve to get to a very good place but prior data setups, again, have been so rigid that evolution has been tough and costly. And finally, number 20, you probably don't need to build out as large of a data team as you might think to start on your data mesh journey. Depending on your timeline, it will take years to get to delivering fully on your vision, but you can add a lot of value as you progress and learn. You don't have to get it perfect at the start. I said that a bunch of times in this, and I think it's really important to really Uh, kind of hammer that home. And also really consider what skill sets are really crucial to building out what you need now and and maybe to helping you avoid locking yourself into decisions you don't want to go down. But that doesn't mean that you have to hire for your 2024 needs in 2022. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Gretchen Moran here, who's the Senior Director of Data Products at the National Geographic Society. We'll talk a little bit about the National Geographic Society versus what most people kind of think of of National Geographic. But we're going to have a, a pretty uh, far-ranging conversation today because National Geographic Society is starting from a pretty unique position. And I think a lot of what they're looking to do is going to be 
helpful in how people think about their own organization and their own journey. And so we're going to cover, you know, their journey so far, what they're they're looking to do, why they decided that data mesh makes sense for them, um, and why why is data mesh so hard right now? Uh, I, I think Gretchen's just got a lot of really interesting perspective on this, and uh, has kind of a unique uh, energy as well to, to her. So I'm excited to kind of jump in with that, um, Gretchen. If you don't mind, if you could give people an introduction to yourself, and then we can kind of jump into the conversation at hand. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really excited to talk about um, where we are, what we're trying to do. Uh, But first, a little bit about me. So my journey with data has been a bit of a a lazy river of opportunities, but my entire career of 24 years has been in data. I started my career in 1997 at a tiny little insurance company in the Midwest as a data warehouse developer. Um, I quickly moved out of that space into the world of startups. So I was fortunate to come alongside a team of entrepreneurs. um, And we basically were serially successful. We built two proprietary tools that uh, were analytic type tools in the data space. And then our third company, um, we moved into commercial open source, building out a business intelligence and, and big data analytics platform. So I, I really got to play a, a long time in that commercial space, but also moved into some roles where I was able to build out a professional services division, where I was able to go into larger companies and help them customize platforms for specific data needs. And so wide ranging in terms of of the different roles that I've played from from developer to um, technical account manager to um, at times architect and and designer of of some pretty interesting data patterns. Um, Once I was done in the startup world, I I, uh, got involved with an NGO in West Africa and we came in uh, post Ebola and we're building out disease surveillance systems. Again, very heavily interested in the capture and um, analytics that ministries of health would do around data uh, in in, uh, inborn disease and uh, was invited to move my family to Nigeria two years later to then build out software for a network of health clinics and and research labs. So while I've been in lots of different verticals and done lots of different things with data, it's always been very data-oriented work that I've done. and, And I really have a passion for data after so many years of working with it. Um, and, you know, my latest uh, gig is as I came back in the middle of the pandemic to the United States, I, I uh, was fortunate enough to be picked up by National Geographic Society, which is um, most people do not know that uh, National Geographic Society actually is one arm of a 134-year-old legacy. Uh, everybody's parents probably know all about the magazine, and, and we all love the documentaries. Um, but we've been in a joint venture where those revenue streams were are being shepherded by very large, famous name, uh, Disney. And we get to focus on the the wonderful work of socially investing in people who are looking to illuminate the wonders of our world. So on the nonprofit side, we're really interested in those explorers and the work that they do that you see amplified in those those great documentaries. Yeah. And I think uh, I've, I've talked to a couple of people that are kind of borderline NGO space, but this is one of the first ones in, in the actual like specific uh, NGO being a non-governmental organization. You know, I know you know that, Gretchen, but for anybody else that's listening. Um, 
and that I think it's it's an interesting thing that you're looking to move uh, to this as be that person on the leading edge or the bleeding edge instead of the uh, fast follower or smart follower or <laughs> kind of that that you're looking to really modernize. So I think a good place to to start with is kind of where are you kind of coming from as the National Geographic Society? What what was or what is still the kind of setup of what led you to look at uh, data mesh and what is kind of the current setup of, you know, when we talked in the, in the pre-call about being pretty siloed and spreadsheet heavy and, and like how <laughs> they, you don't want to move too quickly to try and modernize and shift everybody over and just, um, you know, all of a sudden start producing all this data and just produce it into the void with no actual consumers ready for it. So like, would love to talk about what your your approach has been thus far to prepare yourself for this rather than to just kind of jump into it and be like, we're going to just start producing all this data and hope that consumption happens and we'll just see what happens. Yeah, preparation is the key word there. So I joined National Geographic about a year and a half ago, mid-pandemic, uh, middle of 2020. And so as I came in, one thing to, to recognize is that this division of National Geographic Society and National Geographic Partners, who is our revenue-based partner that manages the magazine and the, the um, documentaries, this split happened in uh, 2017. And so when organizations typically enter into a joint venture, there's a, a division of assets. And, and at that time, the technology organization had to rethink all of its major enterprise architecture. So when you look at the organization, though we are 134 years old, our technology stack is really only about seven years old. And if you think about a seven-year-old organization, we're really right about where most organizations would be. We've been thoughtful about our enterprise architecture. We have not yet introduced a data architecture. And so that actually is what gets a lot of us very excited, Scott, because we are in a position where we don't have a lot to unlearn. And we see that as a significant opportunity. So there's no... Um, there is certainly a lot of uh, thoughtfulness and discussion and pilots that have happened over the last year to help us discern the benefits of some traditional architectures like a data warehouse or a data lake or a lake house. And, and comparing that and analyzing that with the culture that we have and with the principles of what a data mesh brings to the table, there's a lot of reasons why starting with a greenfield landscape like NetGeo has uh, makes a lot of sense for our approach to how we're going to build out our data architecture, mostly in terms of there's no, again, as I mentioned, there's there's not a lot for us to unlearn. I'm working with an organization in on the business side. Our technology division is very, very product-centric already. Again, another thing that lines us up really well with data mesh thinking is we already have a strong contingency of general technologists that know how to do application development and microservices very well. They are already very strong in supporting the organization's needs. They just don't yet treat data like a product, and we can teach them that. The business side of the house very young, very progressive, very forward-leaning. In our hearts, most of us come to National Geographic because we all think there's a little bit of explorer in all of us. So they're, they're actually qu a, quite a, a, a 
forward-leaning learning organization. So as we're looking at data mesh as a fit for us, it makes perfect sense that if we're going to teach an organization the right ways to organize around data, we should start where it makes sense for us. And these are people who are absolutely willing to own their data. They're willing to participate in a federated model. There's, There's a lot about having this clean slate that sets us up well for the tenets of data mesh. It doesn't necessarily make the technical implementation any easier, but but for the three quarters cultural uh, uh, adoption that we need, we think we're we're set up well in that, you know, just all of the things that I mentioned. We've got the right mindset. We've got the right culture. We have um, this love for learning and exploration that always sends us down that empirical path. So we feel like even though not everything is known about data mesh, it doesn't, it doesn't scare us. We, we know we'll learn along the way. Yeah. I, I think you've probably got a lot of people that are um, at least jealous and probably maybe a little bit uh, upset at hearing how, uh, how well your, your stuff is set up and that you don't have kind of the historical uh, overhang of, of ways of working that you're trying to evolve and transition into. But it also kind of means that, uh, with that clean slate that there, <laughs> you kind of have the world of possibilities, which that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I talk about the worst um, question in, in the world, at least in my book is, so tell me about yourself. Because there's no scope, there's no like, okay, direction, no anything like that. So um, yeah, I, I, and and you are kind of in that um, spreadsheet heavy environment, you're in an organization that doesn't know how to really like hasn't had really strong sharing of information across the different domains because everybody's been able to be that that product centric organization can be very insular and it doesn't mean that they're not like willing to share but they don't know how to share and that everybody's got kind of different ways of working so like, you know, that can make it even uh, a little bit more challenging when you're trying to create a standardized way for people to produce data. Um, you you are in kind of that heavy spreadsheet environment. Have you started anywhere on the data literacy side, whether it's for the producers or the consumers or kind of yes, or like how how have you started to plan that out and and do you have any any early learnings, any early like advice for people, patterns, anti-patterns, anything like that? I sure do. So for those, so for those folks who are jealous right now, let's take the rose-colored glasses off, because there's certainly enough um, in our in our organization that will be that that. Um, heavy lift around change, heavy lift around challenging the status quo. And as Scott mentioned, our organization does really like it's, uh, we have four different programmatic divisions, one around exploration, one around science, one around storytelling, and one around education. Each four of those divisions love to believe that they are a special snowflake and that their data is completely unique and that it's it's you know all encompassing in in their ownership model so this is where i said my my stakeholders are not afraid to own their data they do not yet have the language or the um, incentive to share their data. That's coming from our strategic plan, which is called NG Next. Our, we have this wonderful CEO that came in about the same time that I came in. Her name is Jill Tiefenthaler, and she built out one of the most 
um, inspirational strategic plans I've ever seen from an organization. And it's it's tangible. We know what to do here, but it does require that we learn how to share data in order to really um, knock it out of the park for her on the goals that she has for our strategic plan. And these organizations are not yet um, aware of, of how to do that. Our first steps into data literacy were to bring in consultants and start to talk about um, the important things that you would see in a maturity model for organizations that handle data. And they came along with um, a few uh, extra um engagements where they helped us build out a business glossary and they helped get the organization to start to think about this sharing model. I can say that we're well aware that that alone is not going to bring people to the table for data mesh. Those large abstract data transformation PowerPoints are effective to a point. But ultimately, to reach the hearts and minds of the business, you have to be able to solve problems for them or teach them to solve problems autonomously with data. And then you've won them over. That's when you're going to get that middle section of the business to really want to operate in a um, a shared way, in a way that uh, they see the benefits of sharing their data. So then, to your point, Scott, they're, they're also great consumers as well as producers. Um, so... While we have these initiatives that are bringing in these beautiful PowerPoints around data transformation, we know from the bottom up, we need to tackle this charge on multiple fronts. You know, one way that we know we're going to be effective in helping the business really come alongside and understand the value of what we're doing is to be able to introduce new approaches for scaling up. So being able to bring people to the table who are business savvy cross-functionally matrix them into a domain team with their technical counterparts. And then those technical counterparts are working on actual day-to-day problems with them that they have with data and showing them how to solve problems for themselves. While this is not at all going to bring you closer to developing a data product, it is going to win the hearts and minds of the business. And those small wins are really where we see our true effectiveness meeting those big data transformation um, messages in the middle. And that's where the, you know, the, the recognition that those things you did for me where I was able to then solve my own data problem, I want more of that. Well, how do you get more of that? You sign up for, for doing data modeling so that we can actually deliver this in an automated way, in a trustworthy way through a data product. So top down, bottom up, meet in the middle, and, and it is, it is um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with John Cotter, but he is this wonderful professor who's been like the czar of change management since 1985. He works out of one of the Ivy League schools. I follow him closely because he tells you about the importance of not only getting people to make decisions and be comfortable with change in a hierarchy, but that influencer network is, is the power of how you really get people to change a culture and adopt a new paradigm. So we're going to effectively use those influencer networks works through domain teams to make sure that people, when we start talking about asking them to do the work to build a data product, because it takes the business to do that modeling with you, that's when we're going to be able to get them to the table. And it's going to be with a carrot and not a stick, because they're already going to see the value of pairing with their technical counterpart through those domain teams. Yeah. And and I think, again, people are going to be slightly jealous that uh, you actually have an organization where you can uh, affect that change because so many people have this momentum around um, that 
new ways of working have always been um, just painful and not really beneficial or we have that we have that same change. I mean, change is not easy for us either. I want to say I'm, I speak about the whole organization as being um, receptive to this. The truth is we have one division that is that that shaped themselves because they understood data and they value data. They shaped themselves out of the gate to perform as a domain team. And they're going to be our, our light on a hill. We're going to succeed well with them on, under our proof of value for, for the listeners, you know, just full transparency. National Geographic is in the design phase of our of our platform build. We're brand new to this space. We have been We've taken the last year to be very thoughtful and and to plan and to have real conversations around is data mesh really appropriate for us? We don't look like your typical adopter of data mesh, especially this early in the game. I can give all the reasons why we think this is the right path for us. Um, but ultimately, we know our success hinges on this single division that's ready for us. The rest of the organization needs to see it. I can't talk to them about these ideas. I can't try to sell them by words on these ideas. We're going to succeed with this division that already knows the value and is all in with us. And that example is going to propel that change in our culture throughout the organization, Scott. So again, I, I, I speak very, very passionately and always very optimistically about what we're going to do. I don't want to give listeners is the idea that we think this is easy. Change is never easy. Well, and, and I also wanted to highlight one thing you said there about you've spent the last year kind of planning and testing and, and really considering. And I think this is, is one thing that I'm finding a lot of organizations are putting themselves into bad spots with around data mesh is you somebody decides we're, we should do data mesh and then they try and move forward right? Versus like, hey, we need to build up some momentum, right? Like, um, what is it? Uh, Newton's second law of those things that are at rest tend to stay at rest. And those things that Mm -hmm. are in motion tend to stay in motion. But, you know, I I talked to uh, Liz Henderson um, uh, recently on the, the podcast, and we were talking about that it's pretty easy if you're losing momentum to lose funding as well for for things like this. So like you it's difficult to know when you've got the momentum enough to start, but it's also that you don't start from a a sudden stop to trying to run, you know, that's how you pull muscles, that's how you do the mm-hmm. uh the not uh, great way of, of doing athletics. I mean, I shouldn't really be telling anybody about how to do athletics. <laughs> Uh, my, my exercise nowadays is is with uh, running with my dog at, at, for about two blocks at a time, and then we're both uh, a little winded. But um, but I, I think that's important. Uh, a lot of what you're talking about is so much. Hey, we have to set ourselves up for success. We have to mm-hmm. set ourselves in that motion, and a lot of people are struggling with trying to extract the data out of teams that that aren't bought in and sometimes they might never be bought in you know scott hawkins on his episode um talked about if you're having too much trouble with a team feel free to tap out and just say we're not going to work with this team and let that kind of be known up the chain you know not in a really like tattletale kind of way but also like hey this this uh team is not participating and we 
we either need their information for some reason or, you know, they're just not participating and it's not that big of a deal. But like that you have that high level organizational buy in. You talked about tying things into the overall strategy. And I think that's so important. Um, you know, happy to, to give you space to react to that. But I also one thing you talked about is getting people bought in that data matters. And, and I wanted to talk a little bit about when we talked in the pre-call about, you know, the whole data is the new oil and like, mm-hmm. but how can this change somebody's day to day? How can you, how can you make this concrete to make it not just like you will be more data informed, your decisions will be data driven. Okay. What does that actually mean? Like what, why do I want that? Do, is the, the data going to make the decision for me and you're going to, you know, make me redundant or? Well, that, yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so many, ultimately what I've learned through the years is, is any technology effort is still a human effort. And so there's all these strange things that happen when you try to exact change with all of the good intentions of bettering the organization through handling a situation, either a new way or by automating things or by, again, producing data that is self-evident and trustworthy. And, and so the, that changing of, of heart, like I said, we've got to, we've got to tackle this on multiple fronts, right? We've got to learn to skill up differently, skilling up in ways that we're not imposing like these abstract trainings that someone might not use for six months and they barely understood on them. Where we, these, I really see the heart of, of what we're trying to do here being, uh, hinging on this shared data ownership principle where, you're sitting next to the person who needs to understand how to do this. The the other propensity we have where we get in big trouble when we start to call everything data-driven or just tell an organization they need to be more data-driven is the bad metric uh, sin. And, and nothing can do, I think I would rather have no data than have bad metrics because bad metrics can influence behavior poorly. Um, there are particular metrics that we've all, I think, become familiar with the term of vanity metrics that really don't tell you anything, but give you a, a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. We typically chase those vanity metrics because we don't exactly know how to get to the value metrics. And so this is all in education. And those of us in data need to remember that we've lived it. We've been around it for a long time. Most of the rest of the world has wonderful creative talents that are not data talents. So we need to share. And, and that's a human That's a human collaboration effort. That's not a, I'm going to give you a Udemy video. Um, and this is how this is how it becomes a cultural change. You know, the other thing that we've got to be really um, intentional about is this has to be demonstrated from the top. If your leaders are not leading by good metrics and and by example with de- decisions that are driven by facts, then it's really hard to help an organization see what that looks like. So, you know, driving it from the top, you can also start to set expectations for your people who are trying to grapple with how this works in their world. So when someone comes to you with a problem to solve, you know, we're using data to solve problems. So when someone comes to you and says, I'm going to solve this problem this way, challenge their uncertainty. Where is their uncertainty in this? And really peel that onion so that you can force them to look for the next question they need to ask, which is going to prompt them to run the next experiment, which is going to get them to understand their problem better and get them to a better solution. Not everybody 
I mean, we all know that to be the empirical method. Not everybody knows how to do that work. Not everybody thinks that that investment is necessary. But truly, if we're committed to being data-driven, that's the investment we need to make. The other thing that I think is a really good behavioral change to, to bring to your junior folks who are trying to use data to drive things is, is ask them about their analytical choices. You know, as they're presenting their data, have them explain their rationale or their choices, because not only does that bring your collaborators along to understand a little bit better where this data is coming from and what it means, they're going to trust it more. And, and it, it deepens the value of, of what you're trying to do. So you have to guide people along in what these conversations look like. And then don't let them stop at, here's my solution. Ask them why and keep peeling that onion so that they start to think in terms of, oh, I've got another question I need to have an answer for before I can confidently say we should spend this money or we should make this investment. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things in there that I wanted to highlight, you know, and one question as, as a follow-up. So I think that I, I kind of feel like that uh, what you started with was um, every, uh, what was it? Hold on. I think it was every technical, um, any technology effort is still a people effort. Like that should be the tagline mm -hmm. for Data Mesh, right? Like this is a, a technology <laughs> effort, but it's really a people effort. Um, and then like talking about the the metrics of like what actually matters and, and sitting with people and showing them what what they could be doing and then make sure that you circle back on those metrics or whatever what was the outcome what did this mm -hmm. do and mm -hmm. and you know sometimes even sitting with people and going we're going to find something that is a bad insight that is actually not a useful insight and when we're looking for that bad insight we'll probably find a couple of good insights along the way but like, let's work on recognizing what is not useful and what is useful. And like that, that kind of mental switch of it's okay to find things where you go, huh, that's interesting, but it doesn't mean anything. Like I have this equation in my head, metrics plus outcomes equal value. Like if you can't connect the dots from the metrics to the outcome, there's no, there is no value at the end. And so continue, you know, Saying that we've reached 100,000 teachers is an interesting number, but for what? And what, what change did you exact? And what was the outcome of that reach? So there's, it, again, it's that forcing people to ask the next question and look for the next experiment that's going to help elaborate what that impact might be. The other thing that's really hard about doing this in the NGO space versus the, the for-profit world, to be honest, is we measure impact, which is really hard. Impact is this persnickety thing that's tied to causality. And I've got a hundred different researchers who are going to question every tie you try to make between impact and causality, right? Really? Did you cause that? Did you really save those trees in the rainforest? Was it really Nat Geo's presence that made that happen? You've got to get really good at connecting those dots and doing that empirical process of, of digging down and, and, and finding the proof for what you're doing. All of that is, is a, an exercise in getting really good at knowing the value of your data and knowing the value of your metrics. Yeah, it, it's fun. Like, and when you were talking about vanity metrics as well, like when I was first uh, working with the community, like we were growing an insane rate, right? We were growing over a hundred people new into the Slack every week. But the more that I started to look at it, the less the impact was. 
because it was just putting people into the top of the funnel. And so, but like trying to share with, uh, luckily I've got uh, leaders at, at Datastax, especially Sam Ramji, who's been uh, great around um, guiding and supporting and things like that. But uh, around, we can feel that there is an impact and we might not be able to fully measure exactly what it is, but that we can we can kind of narrow in on it and, and really help people understand. Um, the other thing was when you were talking about um, the behavioral change and like guiding people along and, and asking them choices and not being like that person that pushes back that says, you know, prove to me that your rationale was help was, was the right one versus like, what were you, what were you thinking here? Not like, what were you thinking, but what were you thinking? You know? Yeah. I lead with, tell me more. I yeah. lead with tell me more. And and it's it's an offer to to share and it puts the focus on that person and it allows them to be okay with saying, well, I don't know a lot more. And 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 they can offer to they can invite you into helping them with how do I get to the next question. Um yeah, it's we you know, I started out very late in life as someone interested in computing. I cried through my first computer class. I swore that day that I'd never intimidate anyone with technology again. And we can do the same thing with data. We can intimidate people with data and it's not necessary and it, and it really hinders the cause. So yes, I, I am a, a, a huge champion of making technology human accessible and, and um, non-intimidating and allowing people to come to this table because you know it's not as hard as we make it look. It just requires that you're invited into the room. Um, and then we all have to meet everybody where they are. And, and this is, again, the, the crux of what we need to do to, to develop a data culture is meeting people where they are, appreciating. Look, I can tell you when I came to Nat Geo, I was overwhelmed and in, in awe of the tenacity, the ingenuity, and the collaboration that my people in the business go through to develop a report. It takes way too long. It's very manual. But I was absolutely fascinated and, and impressed by the just the, the hoops they would jump through to get what they need. They're, they're, they're so sharp and they're so capable. I want to give them the bandwidth to do the higher order operations that really uh, recognizing and acting on the insights that my automated you know platform can deliver through data products rather than having them spend all of this time as impressive as it is you know manually trying to translate and and synthesize you know data that we could easily you know, model and, and get into a data product for them. Well, I say easily, I shouldn't say easily, but you know, we're, 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 we're optimistic. Yeah. That, that getting people to a higher order of value add is, is so crucial. Um, what, one, one question that I, I had on what we were talking about, a lot of what it seemed like you were talking about of working with, with people requires something that I've found, it's the way my brain just automatically works. So I don't want to, uh, you know, say that this is the right way or the wrong way. It's just my own context, but of immediately jumping in and understanding somebody's business context, right? Like I understand as soon as I, as somebody starts to tell me about what does your organization do? It goes, Oh, okay. This is how it fits into the 
the broader organization and why this matters and things like that. I don't think we've had that as data people. Uh, when you were talking about intimidating people with data, I think that's the thing of data people have kind of a lot of, and a lot of the folks that are saying, you know, we need to keep the data warehouse way of working, the enterprise data warehouse. It's that the data people are kind of on high and we, you know, the tech sages or the information sages, and you must come to us for your insights and all of that. Uh, but like, it is difficult for, for most people to jump in and say, okay, I'm going to understand your business. Con- this is kind of why centralized data engineering in a lot of orgs is <laughs> becomes this, this very, very difficult thing because they can't be the expert in so many contexts. So how are you, sorry, long lead up, but how are you able to work with those people to show them that they can, that you can work with them to create value when it might require some of that business context? Is there that a high context exchange before you jump into it or because I'm, I'm almost imagining just swinging by somebody's desk and going, all right, we're, you know, uh, it's like kind of get in, we're going shopping from mean girls. It's like, okay. Uh, you know, swing your, your chair over here. We're going to learn how to create this report. Like how, how have you worked with people to make that non-intimidating, to make it a smooth process, but also make it where, you don't need the the people who truly understand all aspects of business and data to get the the people to uh, a place where they can use data. Yeah, this is this is one I'm going to say that we've we've tried going in the door, we've tried climbing in the window, we've tried the you know the back ladder. Um, I have this incredible team of product managers that try to do this every day, and we're an incredibly we're nat- National Geographic. If you've ever looked at anything we've ever built, everything is beautiful. We care about our user experience. We care very deeply about being a user centered organization. So when our product division was built out, we. Really really went from a very, um, I think, uh, progressive and and mature product thinking perspective as we rolled that organization out. So my product managers, as we are trying to build out these personalized experiences for our explorers, you know, how we bring them through the grant process, as we try to figure out how we even run a lot of our internal businesses, my PMs are always trying to get with the business and learn more about how do you do what you do. And of course, we use all of the fancy tools, right? We use user story mapping, and we use customer journeys, and we do lots of user research. We're really, really lucky to have an incredible design team that leads the charge on understanding our business well. Now, that is probably where the worlds of product thinking and data need to intersect that haven't in the past. Because even to this day, my PMs and my UXers understand their customers well. They understand what our customers' problems are well. They do not understand what our customer data needs are. That's another layer of that understanding. And so we have a current pilot going right now where we've sent, we've got this product manager and I just can't say enough about her. She's incredibly visual. Everything she does is in a mirror board. 
And she has laid out for, I, I put some of her work in front of an architect that had worked with us for like four years. And we had gone into this architecture summit because we're just now trying to figure out what are the big problems we're trying to solve with this data architecture and why are we building this big thing? And are we over architecting? I put some of Cindy's visuals and what she's doing is she's modeling our business. What do we do? What is the process? She's modeling it at a high level and taking it down to, you know, exactly what are the gives and the gets that each of our explorers get. Long story short, I put her work in front of this architect group and my architect who'd worked with us for four years said, that's the first time I think I understood what National Geographic Society does. I mean, she just knows how to make it visual and in those visuals, like the data jumps off the page at you. So there are people who know this. There are people who work in service design. There are people who work in product management and and UX design that marry, they don't have data modeling skills, but they marry the, the, um, they cross the bridge of the product thinking that we need into that that space of the data that needs to represent actual insight. Insight's a tangible product, right? It's not a data set. It's it's a it's a it's a it's something it's a pattern that you've spotted in that data set. It's a true product. So finding people who have that ability to cross that bridge is the next step in our staffing model. Um, and again, we've got a wonderful target stakeholder that we are piloting a lot of this with right now. Um, I don't think you go out and learn everybody's context. I think you are federated in a way that my product teams are married to my stakeholders who then form a a matrix domain team and they know their context, they know their domain. And then we have a layer that we have not addressed yet, that we haven't figured out yet, that everybody keeps asking me how we're going to do it. That layer where domains need each other to actually provide those higher level executive insights. Um, we're not there yet, but I do believe the foundation is the are these domain teams. I'm, I'm banking heavily on how we build our domain teams, and those domain teams having the business savvy and the and the technical know how. And and those are people who have drinks together and dinner, and they know each other, and they they're in it together. For a while, uh, you know, I, I wish that I was more prolific in, in written content, but um, you, you reminded me of something that I was talking about for um, a month or two uh, last year, which was uh, DUCS, D-U-X, Data User Experience. Uh-huh. And there's the immediate consumer of data, and that user experience is one thing, but then there's the insights consumer. And so you need to have the user experience around data so somebody can derive insights. And then you need the ability to make it easier to share those insights. And those insights can be via storytelling, can be via vis- visualization. I don't like actually learn very well from, from a lot of char- charts and graphs and stuff. I want to see the raw numbers because my brain just processes raw numbers, but that's not normal. Like my brain doesn't work like a normal person. <laughs> well, and I, I would say I, I can tell you that a lot of people are afraid to admit it, but, but many people don't even know how to read those graphs. Yeah. I mean, I, I can read them. It's just like my brain is spending all the time going, okay, like what, what exactly, like, did they play with the axis? Did they do that? Like versus like, oh, I can just <laughs> see the raw numbers and go, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. How can I just see the outliers here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or, or, or what, what was the methodology used? I want to I want to dig into that type of stuff. But yeah, I think that user experience as to and, and what you talked about as well of 
who is then in charge of, you know, if each domain is um, kind of in charge of sharing the insights about their domain, who is, who is responsible for understanding what is going on in the entire organization, those cross domain experiences Mm -hmm. and things. Andrew Padilla's episode talked a lot about your organization has experiences, right? And like, that isn't usually relegated to a single domain. So like what is actually happening in the real world and how do we, how do we represent that so that we can share that information? Because if it's just the ones and zeros of data, which is the way a lot of things have been, or maybe you have a report, but that report doesn't explain what it's trying to actually show. And that if this is, is 10 versus this is two, what does that mean? It's just that this was 10 this week and it was two the next week. Is that good or bad? Or is that within bounds of, of expectations and that we expect this to be zero to 15 and, and it just bounces around in there? Not a big deal versus that 10 was this huge outlier. The two was that like, and then how do we take those and, and do the cross domain? I think a lot of organizations are going to have a centralized insights team, right? And and that that seems counter to data mesh in certain ways, but I, I don't think that those data analysts having a kind of more core or that you have special uh, working relationships across domains, depending on how large your domains are. You know, I talked to uh, Bjorn Smedman at Cinch and they've got basically five very large domains that have, you know, 500 plus people in each domain. So it's pretty easy to establish those one-to-one relationships versus if you're in a very fragmented thing, you might have uh, 50 domains and each domain has six, seven people at most in them, right? Like it can be a very uh, different type of experience. And, And I think I'm excited to see how that emerges, but I don't have a good answer for that. I don't have a good pattern. I, I wish I did, but I, I... You know, I don't either. But if you, if we look at history and you think about the, the vast majority of what we focused on when we built out, when, you, when Inman and Kimball were talking about data warehousing and all of the principles of how you do that, and when we talked about... Um, you know, kind of shifting the investment of data as through the lake downstream to the the lake house or the the data mart past the data lake. We've always focused on those insights, the endpoint, the end of the data stream. I think the thing that I like about data mesh is it's given me a pass to shift left and think about the the collection and the production. And then the consumption, and I have. I also don't have an answer for the. You know, how do we go from federated to because you do know you do need those insights. You do need that aggregate view of the organization. I just don't think it's eighty percent of the problem. And we've focused on it historically. And challenge me if I'm wrong. I believe we focused on it as eighty percent of the problem in the past. And I think what drives that is. That's the data that executives look for, right? And we always say, well, we're going to get the buy-in if we serve the data that the executives are looking for. But if you but if you neglect that left part of the equation from data collection, which is with the reason why we've got so many ETL engines is because the data coming in is so bad. If we shift left and take care of data at the source, if we start to really steward data, I have to believe that that, that end game gets easier. 
we just make the end game. The end game has been so hard and expensive to date because the data that gets there needs so much love and attention because it didn't get it at the, at the source or at the beginning. So from what I've read, I believe that the model that we could build, it requires definitely a, a shift in responsibility. And you're asking busy people who are running a business to also, I mean, it's kind of like asking the person who works 14 hours a day to also do the laundry and the dishes, right? You're asking the people who are running the business, doing very high order, order operations to also care about their data. You've got to make that easy for them. But that brings so much attention to the, the beginning. It's got to make the end easier. This is the logic I use. Doesn't give us an answer, but that's the logic I use. Well, and, and I think when you you shift a lot of that stuff left and you really focus on, you know, I've talked about that. Should you focus on cleaning up the river or should you focus on preventing the pollution to the river, right? right. Like if you can right. prevent that pollution, but like when we think about data, if things are clean as they're moving throughout the system, there's more chances for kind of serendipity of, of those serendipitous insights instead of, I want to answer this specific question. It's like, what is the information telling me? What, what, mm -hmm. what can I tease out of the data and can I get incremental interesting insights? And that if you don't have to worry about, is this data actually usable? Is it clean? Is it, you know, understandable that somebody can kind of dive in and, you know, uh, that, that you do give people that kind of playtime to find additional things because, and, and, but as you mentioned, you also have to give people that are now owning the data, the resources. Now, what, what does resource mean? It can be the technology aspect. It can be the people, it can be um, rearranging their, their KPIs and, and things like that so that they are um given the time to actually focus on data and that you say, okay, we're not going to expect you to deliver all this additional stuff. Plus now focus on your data. We understand that this is not additional work. It is in, uh, you know, kind of replacing some of the other things that you would do. So like getting to that, that organizational approach is, is somewhat difficult because nobody wants to give up their own priorities, but mm -hmm. you've got to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. it, is, it, it does allow for that. And, and I believe there's incentives to your point. There's incentives for producing good data, but uh, you, ha you can't just assume people know how to do that. You've got to give them all of the resources and all of the um, information to know uh, why what they're doing might be harmful or why they can't just. And, you know, the other thing that I really have a strong belief in, I, I came through the era when we decided that we were going to uh, move, I don't think we really moved, but I think we were going to add the data lake to the data architecture spectrum, right? And I think a lot of people give the data lake a bad rap. Everybody ended up with swamps. You know, I, I love I love where that conversation always goes. But the intent behind the data lake was invest when it's appropriate. It was don't invest in everything. Not every piece of data you capture is going to be important day one. And this was one of the big, you know, 
I guess, weaknesses of, of the warehouse. We just thought everything needed to go in there and everything had to be curated. And then we bottlenecked ourselves. The data lake gave us permission to collect data and then invest in it when it's appropriate. And I think Data Mesh needs to consider that as well, that we need to be thoughtful about how do we give people tiers of data collection methods. You can collect your project-based data in a Google spreadsheet because it matters to you, but it's probably not going to matter to anybody else. There's data around possibly addresses and constituents that we're going to have to ask you to do a certain way because that's incredibly valuable data to the organization. And being able to to sort of classify data at investment levels, I think is really important. I don't know that I've read much about Data Mesh's sort of posture on data collection, but this is something that I think is another area that is an investment an idea to invest in as you're looking at shifting left and, and and really trying to create an organization that cares about a clean river rather than cleaning up pollution. And one, it's, it's interesting because this kind of wraps into a lot of the conversations I have is around um, what is the genesis for your data products? Like what is the the creation reason for a data product? What What is the process? And some organizations are pumping in data similar into like a data lake type approach where they pump in a lot of the information, but it's known that it is not high quality, but it gives you a sample of what you could have in high Mm -hmm. quality if there is a specific use case. There are other organizations that are saying, no, every every data product should be created because a user, like a specific user goes to that domain and says, I want you to create this data product. And, you know, to support my use case. And then they, that domain is in charge of also making it reusable. So, but that it, it first meets the specifications of that user. And so you're not saying, okay, we're going to have this with a 10 minute timeliness SLA and a 99.9% accuracy rate. And, you know, that you, you form all these kind of crazy restrictions that make it very, very expensive when the, the consumer's like, we need a 90% accuracy rate on a day's notice, you know, a day of timeliness, like it's not that big of a deal, but it's very valuable, but you don't have to invest a lot in it. Um, And then there are ones where they're just, the domains themselves are in charge of, you need to share your information. You need to come up with a data product that you should share. And um, what that's led to in a lot of cases is lower consumption. Right. Like the more that I talk to that, it's that the domains don't know exactly what people want to consume. And then the consumers are like, well, this thing's already packaged. Do I want it as is? Or can I really ask for the augmentations that I need to fit my use cases? And, it, and it's not leading to high consumption in, in most of the, the organizations that are doing that. So I think it's it's an interesting thing of exactly what you were just talking about. Of mm-hmm. I don't think there is a posture to say that this is the right way to do it, but like there are puts and takes to everything. Just like who should be your data product developer? There's puts and takes to that everywhere. Um, so I, I we we've been talking for 50 minutes, and I feel like we could talk for another four hours. But um, a couple of things that we were looking at. at talking about in the pre-show that I think would be really great to to wrap our, our conversation around is what have you seen around data mesh that makes it so ridiculously hard right now? And, and what are some likely pitfalls or things that the pit traps that people aren't seeing if you're 
uh, Dungeons and Dragons fan? What, what are the the pits that that their perception checks haven't uh, quite noticed yet that that people might fall into? That because uh, I think you've got this broad perspective of having done so many different aspects of data historically. Yeah, thanks for that question. So um, I think it's always going to be a bit of a heavier lift if you're going to challenge the status quo. Um, we we are definitely you know following a, a hype cycle, and there are folks that uh, are looking for the vendors to validate whether this is going to be an appropriate um, approach. And we just are not there, and that's okay. But but ultimately, what's going to make this hard, and it's going to vary depending on the people that are taking the the leap, is people and technology. Right. Those are the things that are going to make this hard. People have to um, really be able to parse the principles of the mesh and then um, put that in a frame with your problems and determine if the things that the benefits that that these ideas can bring to your organization will fit your culture and your your problem space. Um, You're you know, one thing that we didn't talk about that is is well known by me if you've worked with me, but little known by me in your, your realm because you don't know me well. I'm, I'm fanatical about building engineering teams. I've built them in the US, I've built them in Brazil, I've built them in Portugal, I've built them in Nigeria. And it's, it's what I think um, makes engineering so fun is bringing young people together and showing them what they're capable of. So you have to build brave teams. And if you don't build brave teams, that's going to definitely make this ridiculously hard. You can't be afraid in this space. We're too early. It's too new. There's too much that's ambiguous. And if you have a team that's afraid of ambiguity, you're not going to play well here. Um, you have to be able to consume change and, and welcome it. Almost see it as you know not a single event, but as an inevitability. And, and embrace it because all of this could, as we talked earlier, Scott, all of this could change tomorrow. And we could say, hmm, we were wrong about that. I, I definitely want to do that podcast in six months and, and talk about, you know, where, where did we have it right and where did we have it wrong when we talked today? Um, and then the, you know, the, the places where I think you could get in trouble here are places where people get in trouble with most innovations. And, and for data in particular, and this is not new to data mesh, the risk with data is always data ownership. If you can't get shared ownership of data, you're really going to struggle to do any sort of um, data architecture project, right? Um, the, the business loves to believe that technology owns data um, until they want to own their own data and then technology isn't allowed to own it. So there's always that tension there. Shared ownership of data is a relationship. That is one of the the things that if you're not cognizantly building those relationships, that that, that's a landmine that you'll step on and and it will will definitely hurt your project. Um, The other thing that we're really concerned about that I'm always like gut checking, I've got a brilliant team of architects. Are we over architecting this thing too early? What is the minimum I can do to prove my theory that this is a good direction for us and make it robust and durable so that I don't have to go back and rework it? That's a really hard thing to figure out with data mesh because the promise is so big. Um, but you want to make sure that you you take bite-sized chunks of this elephant because it's it's a wild investment and you want to make sure you're investing to the point that your business needs the investment. Um, the other thing that I get concerned about is my teams worry sometimes, are we doing this wrong? And I tell them all the time, like, I don't know that we could do this wrong. 
I don't know that anybody knows what wrong is. But I, I when I thought about when I thought about that as one of my points of, you know, um, a landmine for data mesh, I thought about a question for you, Scott, is like, how do you discern somebody actually is doing the data mesh versus they are doing something that's mesh inspired versus they're doing something that is masquerading as a mesh? I, I don't know those lines yet. And and so I I speak very liberally with my teams about we we can't really get this wrong if it's if it's providing value to our organization. It may not exactly be a mesh, but we can't be wrong if it's providing value to the organization. And that question to me, like I don't want to be the arbiter of is this is this or isn't this. I think the thing of exactly what you talked about, I at the end of the day, I'm not, people think that I'm this like data mesh fanatic and that everybody should do data mesh. And, and I tell, I tell more, many more people that they, they aren't ready for data mesh than I tell people that they are. Um, and I think from my perspective, exactly what you said of, does this drive value? I, I don't care if data mesh isn't, is or isn't the right way what I want to do is drive us forward in how we evaluate what is right for organizations and how this can be done right. I think when you said, are we doing this wrong? To, the, to that, I would say to every organization, yes, but does it matter, right? Like, is there mm-hmm. a perfect way to do this? No, like that doesn't make any sense, right? Like, it's just like, do you have, did you, it, it's not a math test. It's not, you can get a perfect response. This is human interaction, human interaction with information, even though people think that information is 100% accurate or 100% correct or whatever they, they want to think about that. It's not the case. It's, does this do what we need it to do? Does this drive the value? At the end of the day, that's what matters. And so, you know, is this mesh inspired? Okay, if you've got super centralized ownership of data, you're probably not even mesh inspired. But if, you know, once you start to decentralize the data, oh, okay, uh, our governance team owns, you know, this amount of, of things versus this other team's governance owns. Well, does it work for both organizations? The answer is yes. Who cares? Who cares what the label is? The the thing that I've been protective of around is this data mesh or isn't this data mesh is that a lot of people are confusing people, sometimes not on purpose, but especially the vendors are doing it specifically for you know nefarious purposes. And that that confusion is what I'm fighting against. I don't care, does this fit the canonical vision? Because the canonical vision, you know, this has been the, the big problem with data is that you've had to try and get everything exactly right up front. Because if you didn't with the data warehouse, you know, even before you deployed your data warehouse, it was already starting to fall apart because uh, all the real world has changed and the insights mm-hmm. that you want to deliver. So you're, the, the change is so painful in that world. We're trying to create a world where that change is much less painful. It's still going to be painful. But like at the end of the day, what matters is delivering value, delivering the results that you really want. So whatever we call it, you know, when I I tell people in their written documentation, if it's going to be shared outside of the data team, 
you should write down, you should copy, find, replace data mesh with unicorn farts, because then you will take data mesh out of, and unicorn farts out of every single document, <laughs> right? It's not, it's yeah. not that I want you to share yes. documents with other people that say unicorn farts in it, but that you take that out. Cause that's not what matters. Like what matters in their context, what, what matters is delivering the value. And there are a lot of people trying to drive to shortcuts that are just going to create, you know, oh, we're just going to shove the ownership over here, but we're not going to enable those people and teach those people like how to share their data. It's going to end up in just, you know, the whole uh, data mesh versus data mess and, you know, all that, that uh, pun, but like, you are just going to create a mess. Like there are a lot of ways to go down this in a wrong way, but the fact that you're constantly saying that people are worried about, are we doing this wrong means that they're prepared to think about how to change and evolve to do this better and better. Cause that's, that's the way that you're going to be successful in my view. I mean, I'm just preaching here, but like that's. I'm, I'm sitting at your feet because I, I agree a hundred percent. And I, you know, one thing being in, in the technology realm for as long as I have, we love our debates. We love to get philosophical about terminology and is it the right word? And then all of a sudden we're, you know, we're really having a debate about whether the sky is blue because it matters that much. Uh, but ultimately that's a, something that is a, a coaching and mentoring point for, for me and, and my young engineers is to say, you know, this is about the value we're driving. Um, let's simple is better. Let's not over architect this thing. And then let's make sure that we recognize that we can't do it without the business. Those are the things that we keep squarely in our sites because we know those are the things that are, are the, the things that could really hurt us in the end. You know, for, for a lot of organizations, I thought about it too. When I, when I thought about all of the technology that I've been blessed and privileged to be exposed to, domain-driven design, microservices, data architecture, domain, uh, you know, modeling, when I think about all, like, semantic versioning, release management, when I think about all the things I know, what I think also makes Data Mesh a little bit out of reach is you can overcome the difficulty of, of change management. Software has done this, right? We release software like you don't even notice it anymore, your phone updates by itself. We could apply that technology and that thinking to data, and we should, but it's a word salad for people who are not involved in all of those spaces and know all of those different approaches and different patterns and different disciplines. So it is a, it is a very large technical leap if you, if you don't have a product-minded team that already does a lot of really cool application development already, in my mind. And, and that, I'm trying to do some of that stuff with the podcast of exposing people to those concepts, right? Like SLAs yeah. and SLOs, most mm-hmm. people in data have not really thought about that SLA, SLO thinking. And so like Tim Tischler's episode, Emily Gorsinski's episode, so much of this, it, like I, I tell people that they really have to think about reliability engineering and how we take, oh, yeah. we and we shouldn't just take product thinking from software. We should take product thinking from everywhere. And like physical goods, there is a cost of creation. There is a cost of storage. There is like demand of actually measuring what is the demand for this before you start to create it is important. But we haven't thought about that with with data in a lot of cases, or it's only by request instead of saying, hey, I've got this idea. Would you be interested in consuming it? Like, let's work and find something that's going to be valuable to you to consume. Like flipping that switch of, I've got information to share. Uh, you know, that kind of, if you see something, say something. I've got insights that could be valuable to your your domain. Like, let's talk about what, what I've got 
And let's talk about how we fund that and how we create that and, and make sure that this is going to be valuable. And then we test it out. And if it's not valuable, we shut it down. We stop producing that product. Like there's a cost to it. So like, but we haven't had that like sunsetting and versioning and everything in data that I, I hope that we can take that. But it is like, do do data people have to now learn 30 disciplines to be able to do data mesh? Because that's such a massive cognitive load, especially taking all that on at once. But but that's where that's where you leverage your your application developers, right? I'm I'm not coming here saying like I I started out with zero team. I started out with a really strong set of application developers and and product teams, and I did have to add for our platform. I did have to add some data engineers, but there you can start out with a base and reuse it, which is what I loved about data mesh. Rather than thinking I had to go hire a bunch of data specialists, what I really needed was some supplemental experience with event streaming and and potentially, you know, some some good uh, data architects. And and I'm gonna teach my general technologists how to appreciate data the way that I do. Again, the mentoring and the coaching comes in, right? These you've got to make these engineers care as much about data as they do about building those beautiful applications that they get so excited about. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a, a collaborative effort where you can use resources you have if you have them. If you don't have them, um, that's where I think this gets to be, uh, you know, an exponential learning curve. Yeah, yeah, it's it. And that's where I, I, I feel empathy for people learning is that it can feel like, oh, I, do I have to learn all of this myself? Because data people have had to encompass all of data, right? Like these data stewards, like uh, I, I talked to Ashish Mack about this and like the concept of a data steward was so, it, it it's not survived to today because the amount of context that they've had to hold in their head is you know, exponentially increased over, and that was 30 years ago. Think about exponential increase over 30 years versus now. And so um, I, I like that that we're trying to reduce the cognitive load, but it, it, I do talk to people that are leading journeys that are having cognitive load problems themselves because they're trying to offload all of that from everybody else. So I think I like that you're giving people permission to just like figure out who in your team can know what and start to mm -hmm. kind of uh, pass that around that everybody can kind of learn these things. So again, Gretchen, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I, I, I love chatting with you on this stuff. And like I said, we could go for hours and hours, but um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you think it would, it would be useful to kind of uh, kind of put a button on or any any way that you'd sum up our conversation that that you think is important for people or I think we have been all over the map Scott but I I I do like to think that we've emphasized the team right we've emphasized the the team and really looking at what what skill sets, what talents you, you need to bring together. Um, there's, there's a book that I read a million years ago about building your tiger team. I think it is so applicable in this space because you don't need homogenous. You can't, you can't work with homogenous in this environment. You, you're going to have to have, um, you know, a, a team that really brings a lot of different talents together and, and focusing on that team is really important. Yeah, I think that's crucial. And and that it's okay as well to have gaps for a while. Like that yeah. you you're not going to deliver every bit of data value from day one, right? Like I, I think as you grow and, and evolve people. So um well again, uh 
I'm sure there's a lot, a lot of people who have been listening who would love to get in contact. So where's the best place to get in contact? What do you want people kind of reaching out about? Reach out on LinkedIn. That's that's definitely the best way to to find me. Okay. And, and anything you want people reaching out about specifically or? So I really um, would would love to share about Data Mesh, but if you're reaching out to me for, for what I'm truly passionate about, um, building those teams is where I shine. So if you're interested in what the journey looks like to build out teams for Data Mesh and really want to, you know, uh, talk about that and share ideas and uh, debate about that, that's probably the best topic that would get my attention. <laughs> awesome. I know that's that's something a lot of people are struggling with too of of how do you actually build this out and do we have to hire 8 million additional heads or whatever. So, um well again, <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for for spending the time with me and and thank you as well everyone for listening. Thank you, Scott. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Gretchen Morant, the Senior Director Data Products at the National Geographic Society. Again, the nonprofit arm of National Geographic. You can find a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. She's also looking to hire a product manager for her team. So the National Geographic Society's job page is also linked to in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.